You're listening to BuddhistGeeks.com. August 13th, 2007. Episode 32, Dharmic Throw-Up. This week, we had the great pleasure of speaking with teacher and artist Robert Spellman, who was a student of Chogyon Trungpa Rinpoche and a longtime member of the Shambhala tradition. In the first part of this series, Robert shares several personal vignettes and also introduces a somewhat wretched metaphor for understanding the development of the path. This is part one of a two-part series. This episode of Buddhist Geeks is sponsored by the Do No Harm Movement. To find out more about the Do No Harm Movement and to receive a free Do No Harm bumper sticker and wristband, please visit www.donoharm.us. I'm joined today by Robert Spellman, a professor at Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. He teaches at least two things that I'm aware of. One is an art class or art classes, and then he also teaches uh, meditation practicums, classes which the basic theory and practice of meditation is taught. So he, he's kind of a unique professor at Naropa that I've seen who teaches these two really seemingly different kinds of things, although I suspect when we get to get into it, we'll find out that they're probably not so disconnected. And finally, he's also a professional artist, and I noticed that he actually had a, an art show recently that I unfortunately missed, so he... He must be selling some art, I'm sure. So that's probably part of his livelihood also as, uh, as an artist. So, so I was thinking, Robert, if, if you're interested, could you maybe tell me a little bit more about, about the kinds of work you do and, and what your interest in Buddhism is and how you got started mm-hmm. and that sort of thing? Sure. Um, first of all, I don't think there's anything that unusual about the combination of things that I teach at mm-hmm. Naropa. When Naropa started in the 70s, um, as you know, there were Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who founded the place, was very interested in uh, mm. the arts as a as a practice, actually, mm. and so that was why he connected up with people like Allen Ginsberg and Ann Waldman and and Barbara Dilley and others who were uh, you know writers and dancers and so on. So the combination of the two of meditation and artistic practice was uh, intentional in the forming of Naropa, and also uh, still not that unusual. Mm. Just wanted to uh, clarify that because nice. uh, what I'm doing in teaching uh, studio visual arts classes uh, and meditation is um, part of what's been going on at Naropa right since the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Having gone there, I noticed that those two kinds of things in the art classes I took were very integrated. Mm-hmm. Um, although at other schools, you just wouldn't see those kind of things together. So Naropa is a really unique place in that in that sense. Well, it's definitely unique. <laughs> all right <laughs> so anyway back to your original question yeah, about yeah. Uh, what um uh, what's my part in all of this or how did i get tangled up in this or however you want to look at it yeah i've been interested i think uh sometime probably starting in pre-adolescence i i started getting haunted but by, by the idea that there was something i was supposed to be doing here uh-huh. uh here on earth i mean here in this body I was brought up in a very traditional Irish Catholic house, and in some ways I really liked it, and in other ways I was quite put off by it. But as I got older, I it was this one sense that there was something I was supposed to be attending to or looking at or figuring out uh, was haunting, quite literally. 
And when I was in college um, in Boston, I went to Massachusetts College of Art, I was uh, very confused during a period of years for a number of reasons I won't go into. But uh, it was the 60s, and um, uh, the re- Vietnam War was happening, and I, I, I was struck with the idea that maybe I should drop out of school and join the Army, which was um, fortunately intercepted by a very uh, helpful teacher that I had named Arthur Honer, uh, who uh, dissuaded me from this. And at the same time that he dissuaded me from that, he recommended a book called Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, which I think is still in print by Paul Reps, and it's got, it, it's got things like 101 Zen stories or something like that in it. And I remember being um, quite amazed by the uh, mind that was presented by those stories, and by the um, it was sort of like fresh air that I'd never uh, quite been able to put words to before. And I would mark that as the real beginning of my uh, involvement with meditation practice. How old were you at that point? Well, I was in college, and I was probably a sophomore, so I was probably around 20. Mm. And I didn't really start formally practicing meditation until some years after I graduated. Probably, I think it was 1976, I uh, came across Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who was starting various meditation centers around the U.S. and uh, Canada and Europe. And that was uh, my first introduction to actual formal practice of meditation. Mm. Actually, that's not true. I just remembered before that I, I had a brief brush, I guess you could say, with uh, Vipassana meditation. Mm. And uh, that, that, was where, that was my first formal uh, meditation practice. But I wasn't doing it in a formal context. It was the uh, Chogyam Trungpa's context that was the beginning of a formal situation. Just because I'm, I'm interested in Vipassana, who, who in the early 70s uh, was teaching? Was it Goenka? Um, there's a man, uh, he was a Burmese teacher, uh, and his name uh, at the time, I, and I think he changed it, his name was Chao Kun Pra Sobana Damasudi. <laughs> <clears throat> and nice. I remember that because he wrote a book called Insight Meditation. Okay. Uh, and uh, I got a copy of it, and it's, uh, I still have that book, and I, st- I still read it. And in fact, I was using it in the class you took uh, with me, I was using some of the oh, nice. um, things with um, from that book okay. that are very traditional uh, Vipassana um, Theravadan teachings. Okay, nice. So then you you were exposed later to Chukyam Trungpa. Yes. Was that actually in Massachusetts? Was he yes. kind of flying through there? Well, it was uh, in Boston, and I would see advertisements for a center that he had in Cambridge, and I would go over. I went over um, expecting that he would be there mm-hmm. and was disappointed that he hadn't been there in two years. <laughs> But um, I was immediately taken with his students and the quality of the scene, which was so weird and uh, somehow strangely comfortable mm. uh, in an uncomfortable sort of way, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Mm. You know, people were smoking cigarettes and sort of swearing and, and uh, seducing one another. And there was a kind of uh, humanness to it that I, that I thought, oh, this looks, this looks good. It's about the, probably the exact opposite of the Burmese uh, teacher. Quite so. Yeah. But there was something true about how people were behaving that uh, was sort of um, uh, both off-putting and attractive, is maybe a better way to say it, Mm. uh, than comfortable. It was off-putting and attractive. Mm. And I think it was the uh, way that um, Trungpa Rinpoche was uh, interested in teaching people to go directly to their uh, their actual being rather than uh, adopting a lot of modes of uh, spiritual affectation. Mm. So people, you know, were were quite uh, brusque sometimes. Mm, interesting. Did you start practicing there and then eventually get more connected in with his 
mm-hmm. his community? Did yeah, you? Well, that was his community. I mean, that was the Boston branch, you could say, of right. his community. Right. So did you ever end up um, moving to where he was and spending kind of a lot of time with him? Because I know at some point you you were actually moved to Colorado and were doing some more, I've heard you say you're doing like a lot more intensive practice at, at certain periods. Yeah. Um, I, uh, my wife and I were invited to be the caretakers of a solitary retreat center in Southern Colorado uh, in 1985. So we moved there and, you know, we were part uh, janitors, wood choppers and uh, retreat masters and shoppers for everyone <laughs> who came to do their solitary retreats. And it was during that time that, um, both my wife's uh, his name is Joan Anderson, and she and I were both artists. And we, we during that time, started uh, realizing a lot about the connection between meditation practice and artistic practice. Mm, interesting. Would you say that was uh, a pretty important phase of your relationship to practice when you're actually living at the retreat center? Quite, quite so. I think it was. Um, uh, it was. We did it for six years, and it was. It's hard to describe, but one of the things that happened during that time was a, a tremendous appreciation for retreat practice uh, in an almost generic sense of uh, what solitude does to people mm. when, when people come in and they spend time by themselves, uh, completely apart from whether it was Buddhist or not. Mm. There was something about the solitude itself that uh, seeing its effect again and again and again on people over a period of six years, that was very inspiring. Mm. Nice. Uh, this summer I was at, um, we went to Ireland and visited this very ancient uh, Christian monastery uh, on a rock off of County Kerry, and it's called Skellig Michael, and it's this 700-foot high rock. And when I say a rock, I'm not exaggerating, it's just this rock coming up out of the ocean. It was one of the most awesome places I've ever seen. And in the 6th century, uh, some very, very hardcore Christian uh, practitioners, uh, monks, ascetics, moved there and set up shop. And how they even set up shop is beyond, I can't even con- conceive of how they did this. And it lasted for 600 years. Wow. This, um, this monastery was there until the 12th century, actively there till the 12th century. But um, I, I visited the place this summer. I've, been, I've wanted to for years and, and had a chance this summer to go out there and uh, imagining the solitude of that place, you know, it's mm. off of the coast of very rugged coast in County Kerry in Ireland. And, you know, there were t- many days where you could not either get off or on the rock. And there's no, you know, there's no, nothing there but rock and moss and thousands of seabirds and the ocean and the wind and the fog and the whole thing. Mm. <laughs> Quite amazing place. Nice. Yeah. Cool. So, um, would you say you're actively involved now with the Shambhala uh, community here in Boulder? I know this is a, a kind of headquarters in some ways. Yeah, not so much actively. I was very actively involved administratively for quite a few years, starting in the early 80s. And I would say ending with the, uh, I was, uh, the Shambhala Center used to be called the, uh, used to be called Karmazong, and I was the director there. And uh, that was sort of the, I don't know whether you'd call it the apex or the nadir of my uh, administrative life. And after that, I, I sort of retired. I wouldn't say sort of. I actually had to step out of the, the kind of um, organizational part and the administrative and uh, part of it. It actually brings up an interesting thing because I think um, a lot of the stories of different people in, um, in well, I'll just limit it to uh, the Kagyu lineage of what 
uh, you know, the people who, uh, Chogyam Trungpa and, and people who preceded him, uh, all the way back to the historical Naropa, the, uh, the teacher Naropa. Uh, I don't know if you could say all, but many, many, many of the stories involve having to leave what they grew up in. Mm. You know, which um, I think is, you know, it might be part of the Buddhist path altogether that you get, uh, you know, the Buddha himself had to leave the, the castle, so to speak, that he grew up in. Mm. And I think that that, uh, having to leave what's comfortable and what's familiar is a very big part of the spiritual path. Mm. So, you know, in some ways I was very comfortable as a uh, somebody very administratively involved. It gave me the sort of feedback that I was doing good and that I was helping the world and blah, blah, blah. And um, actually it um, may have been partly that, but it was also um, something that I actually had to get away from. Mm. You know, not just because it was, you know, it tasted bad or something, but I had right. to get away from it for my own, you know, actually getting away into something other than that. Mm. So it had, had something to do with your actual development. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think people can get quite stuck, Yeah, you know, in, in anything. You can get stuck in anything, you mm-hmm. know, whether it's substances, gambling, religion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I felt that part of my um, uh, own path, I felt that I had to actually take what I've been given so far, which is a lot over the years by a lot of different teachers, and, mm-hmm. and actually take, you know, try to realize what they mean, mm. you know rather than uh, continually adding on. It's sort of like, um, you know, at some point or other you have to take what you know and, and go off and uh, realize it, mm. which, again, is, is a very traditional thing. Um, the uh, Milarepa, the great uh, Tibetan yogi, uh, at some point his teacher actually kicked him out, mm-hmm. said, all right, get out of here, <laughs> you know, go do it. And, and he... Uh, uh, that's when he went off and, and spent so many years uh, in caves, in solitude, and in, in retreat. You know, it was uh, too comfortable for him to just keep hanging around the guru and mm-hmm. getting new instructions. And mm. so uh, that's another part of the spiritual path. I think it's like, um, have you ever watched birds um, when they're fledging? You know, the, you see the baby birds in the nest and they're they're just these little horrid-looking things with no feathers and their mouths wide open and you know the parents work so hard and they bring them all of the chewed up grubs and do you know they throw up into their mouths i did know that yeah it's quite a thing i'm it's, i'm always amazed to think about having having my mother come and throw up into my mouth but anyway that's another <laughs> story the uh, the birds um when they reach a certain point when they're when they're having to get out of the nest, uh, the parents actually start doing these very interesting things where they will, if they're in a bird house, this is where I've watched this, the mother will come and sit at, at some distance away so that the birds have to lean way, way out of the house, you mm-hmm. know, out of the little hole in the front of the house. Mm-hmm. And uh, they'll sometimes actually trick them into falling out of the house. You know, they, they're pulling them out of the house, but they actually at some point throw them out. And I think that there's a there's a part of that in the, in the spiritual path that a, that a good teacher will throw his or her students out at some point. So how's it been being, being thrown out? (laughs) (laughs) It's been uh, lonely actually. Uh, Do you think, I mean, I I don't think you're saying this, but would you say that's a necessary thing for all um, people on the, on the path? Or is that just kind of something that happens some of the time? where someone needs to be thrown out, or is that kind of, uh, the way you're speaking about it seem more like an inevitable type of thing? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, speaking for myself, I know yeah. that, you know, that I had to be thrown out. Yeah. And, and, I, and I see people that, uh, 
that look like they should be thrown out. Right. And when I say thrown out, I just mean put out, you know, uh, you don't just sit in the nest, you know, uh, waiting for mommy and daddy to go, come home and throw up into your mouth. You know, right. after a certain point, you actually have to get out and figure it out yourself. Right. And so, so maybe, maybe breaking it up to like the external and internal, um, I could imagine a scenario where someone probably still part of a community, but like something shifted in them and they're really committed to actualizing the teachings they've gotten from their teachers and something might shift for them. doesn't mean they'd necessarily leave the community. That's right. That's right. Um, but what I hear you describing is some sort of shift where someone realizes they've got to totally understand what's being taught and not simply get the social like, benefit of yeah, having the relationship with their teachers and community or kind of whatever else is going on. Yeah, that's a good uh, way to scene. put it. Okay. Yeah. Cool. That makes perfect sense uh, for me. Yeah, and I also also should say that the the idea of uh, of enlightenment or being awake is really big. Mm. You know, it's really big, and so the idea of, of that it could be contained by an organization or a name or an association of people or, or even a religious tradition uh, is silly. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, the the leaving isn't really going anywhere. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's not as though you're. Mm-hmm all done with anything it's uh, it's just uh, realizing that the world is much much bigger than you thought this has been a presentation of buddhistgeeks.com copyright 2007 music in this podcast provided by c for chaos for more great music and writing visit his blog at www.cforchaos.com Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.